what is your biggest problem? We're just going to dive right into it this morning, I know. <laughs> That's some way to start, isn't it? All right, as you think about that, maybe to lighten the mood a little, um, today's Super Bowl Sunday. Some people here don't care about that at all. I was talking to some in the lobby who was like, I don't care about the Super Bowl. But whether or not you care about football, the Super Bowl, um, knowing the biggest problem is relevant to that game. Let me prove that point. All right, so teams in the Super Bowl, Los Angeles Rams, New England Patriots. When was the last time both of those teams played a football game? Not played each other, but played a game. It was like two weeks ago, right? They've had two weeks since today. What have they done in between? Well, they've likely done a lot of things. They've rested, visited family maybe, uh, rehabbed injuries, went to send-off parties, talked to the media. All those things, though, they're not the most important things that they've done in the two weeks up to today. The most important thing that they have done is strategize how they're going to beat their opponent. Now, there's a lot involved in strategizing to win a football game, especially the Super Bowl. You have two weeks to do it. Likely they've watched film of their opponent to see how they play. They've talked through different possible scenarios of what they need to do if this happens in the game. They've talked to each part of their team and what that part of the team needs to do in order to be successful to win the game. After they gather all the information that they need, they develop their strategy. Now the strategy basically has to answer two different things. What is the biggest threat that our opponent poses to us and how do we overcome it? The biggest threat and how do we overcome it? Our biggest problem and the solution. Well, we can talk whether strategizing or executing is more important, uh, but still, it's hard to execute, it's hard to play effectively without a good strategy. Unfortunately, for the case of the Patriots, they're really good at both. <laughs> like over the last 20 years, Bill Belichick and Tom Brady um, have shown themselves to do both of these things well. But just to focus on the strategy side of it for a second. The Patriots are like eighth grade bullies. They can determine your biggest weakness with pinpoint accuracy. The Patriots are known for neutralizing their opponent's strengths. And even when they don't have the most talent, they can put their players in the best positions in order for them to succeed. So it's really hard to beat them. And even as they know their opponent's biggest strength, the Patriots know their own biggest weaknesses. They know where they're the most vulnerable. And so they can prepare for it. One of the most infuriating things I think about watching the Patriots and watching them win is that they'll let their opponent think that they have them. Like in the first half, they'll just look in complete disarray. And then somehow at halftime, they'll just flip a switch and boom, crush their opponent's dreams. So the Rams face an opponent that's been to the Super Bowl a thousand times and who will anticipate their every move. And it has even went to questionable tactics in the past doing anything to win. The point is, the Rams, at least I think, have a small margin for error. 
If the Rams are going to win, they must have a well-thought-out strategy. If they focus on the wrong threats, if they focus on the wrong problems and don't account for their biggest weaknesses, they will lose. So, we return to our original kind of heavy question. What is your biggest problem? If you get it wrong, it'll beat you. If you don't address it, you will lose the game. Now, for those who aren't sports fans here, thank you for enduring that. We can illustrate the same principle in different areas. But in the first part of Mark 7, Jesus deals with a group of people who think their biggest problem is something other than what it really is. And the stakes here are far higher than winning or losing a football game. The stakes are whether or not we are near God and right with God. So let's read about this encounter in Mark chapter 7, verses 1 to 23. Looking at a Bible that looks like this, the pew rack in front of you, you'll find it on page 842. Mark chapter 7. Now when the Pharisees gathered to him with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, they saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly, holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. And the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? And he said to them, Well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. And he said to them, You have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. For Moses said, Honor your father and mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, if a man tells his father or his mother, whatever you would have gained from me is Corban, that is, given to God, then you are no longer permitting him to do anything for his father or mother, thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down. And many such things you do. And he called the people to him again and said to them, Hear me, all of you, and understand. There is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him. But the things that come out of a person are what defile him. And when he had entered the house and left the people, his disciples asked him about the parable. And he said to them, Then are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him, since it enters not his heart but his stomach and is expelled? Thus he declared all foods clean. And he said, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, 
theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within, and they defile a person. Our biggest problem is us. And solving it takes more than a touch-up, but an overhaul. That's the main point, I think, of this passage in our time together this morning. Our biggest problem is us. And solving it takes more than a touch-up, but an overhaul. In other words, friends, Jesus intends to transform our hearts, not just our behavior. So the Pharisees and the scribes, this group of men who come to Jesus, they were convinced that our biggest problem lies outside of us rather than lying in us. Now, as we unfold their encounter with Jesus, we'll see why they believed this and how Jesus says our biggest problem is actually the opposite, that our biggest problem is in us, not outside of us. Now, talking about what our biggest problem is might seem like a really depressing prospect might seem like we're here just to beat up on ourselves. Well, friends, let me assure you that is not the case. Instead, what we want to do always is be honest about ourselves and to be honest about what God's word says about us. The goal of knowing the truth about our biggest problem isn't to beat up on ourselves. It's so that we can know what overcomes this problem. You can't know good news unless there's bad news. You can't skip this part. So we're going to break down this encounter between the Pharisees and Jesus just as it happens. So it happens in three different parts. It begins, verses 1 to 5, with the Pharisees' critique. And then... It ends with Jesus' two-part answer. First part in verses 6 to 13, he kind of makes one central point there. And then the second part of that answer in verses 14 to 23, and he has another central part to that answer there. So that's kind of the roadmap of where we're going. Uh, Let me give you a running start, uh, as I like to do when we're treading through one particular book. Uh, We've been in Mark, I think this is the fifth or sixth week back. Fifth week, I wrote it down. Fifth week back in Mark, we picked it up at the beginning of chapter 6. Remember that Mark as a whole deals with different themes. Different themes are threads that run throughout. So some examples. Deals with the theme of the identity of Jesus. Namely, who he is. How he is both the son of God and he is the suffering servant uh, who saves uh, his people. Mark deals with the theme of the mission of Jesus. In other words, what Jesus has come to do. He has come to bring in the kingdom of God, to attest to it, to preview it, and to die for the people who will be brought into it. Mark deals with the theme of how people are to respond to Jesus. Also with the theme of what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. Throughout the book, we get both good and bad examples of that. So today, as we come to Mark 7, there's no real chronological or geographical connector between the end of chapter 6 and the beginning of chapter 7. 
likely the main connection, the main way this flows is that Jesus is still in the region of Galilee and his audience is still primarily Jewish. So in our passage today, all those themes we talked about, we get a mixture of all that. See something of Jesus' identity, his authority to declare what God actually means in his word. We see something of Jesus' identity as the one who fulfills God's word. We see the theme of what it means to respond to him, to respond to him at the level of our hearts. So that's kind of what's going on in Mark 7, how it fits in with the bigger story. So let's jump into this small part of the book, and we'll begin with the Pharisees' critique, verses 1 to 5. So we jump in there. You seen those signs that say, employees must wash hands? It's like in every restaurant in America, you see it, you go to McDonald's, you go to the restroom, uh, and you, you see that on the wall. Employees must wash hands. And you're just hoping to God that the presence of that sign will motivate employees, the ones who handle our food, to make sure their hands are clean. <laughs> Maybe that's not always the case. At least I hope it is. And I just wonder... I wonder if there was such an epidemic of lack of hand washing in restaurants in America that made it necessary to put up these signs in every single restroom, in every single restaurant. But that's besides the point. So what happens here? Beginning of the Pharisees' critique. The Pharisees and the scribes from Jerusalem come to Jesus and his disciples with a concern about washing hands before they ate. And to us, this seems pretty reasonable, right? It makes sense. I mean, you get nasty stuff on your hands, and it's probably a good idea to wash that stuff off before you use them to put things in your mouth. But as we read their critique, we see that the Pharisees don't come as crusaders from the health department, seeking to prevent the spread of germs and promote hygienic cleanliness. No, no, no. The Pharisees came to Jesus and his disciples seeking to promote ritual cleanliness. Now, before we get into what that means, we can set up the scene a little bit. Now, by this point of the book of Mark, we're familiar with the scribes and the Pharisees. These were Jewish religious authorities that protected the Mosaic law and sought to preserve the way of life that this law prescribed. Now, in this passage, we'll see how in seeking to do that, the Pharisees overstepped their bounds. Now, they've already had several run-ins with Jesus, and it's clear that they feel threatened by him. They're never able to answer his challenges about their teaching, but he's always able to answer their challenges about his teaching. And they've gotten so frustrated with Jesus, they have come to hate Jesus so much that earlier in Mark, it says that now they are plotting to destroy Jesus. So this is the mindset that the Pharisees have in mind as they are gathering to Jesus, as Mark says in verse 1. When they gather to Jesus, they criticize him that he allows his disciples to be defiled. They're implying that this must mean Jesus doesn't care about how his disciples follow God's instructions. And he doesn't care that his disciples are holy or not. It's a jab at Jesus, an underhanded one at that. 
But friends, what does it mean to be defiled or unclean? And why is that such a big deal? Again, the Pharisees were not germaphobes. Another word for defiled is unclean. And being unclean would prevent you uh, from being near God and being within the community. So we go back to God's instructions to his people in the Torah or the Pentateuch. That is the first five books of the Bible. And in those instructions, he shows different categories that would make a person unclean or defiled. Now, these are categories like contact with a dead body, um, having an infectious skin disease, uh, contact with bodily discharges, uh, and even some certain foods. These different things would make a person unclean. Now, if you became defiled or unclean, you often had to be quarantined from the rest of the community. And before you approached the sanctuary of God, you had to be washed or purified. Now, many of the things that made people unclean actually made them unclean. The, a lot of these things are practical. They would, so quarantining people and washing them would prevent practically the spread of disease or death. So sometimes actions are necessary to protect the group as a, as a whole. But there's always a deeper point to it. You see, when Israel became physically defiled or unclean, it was meant to show them that their sin makes them spiritually defiled or unclean. And they need washing and purification from their sin as much as they do from their physical uncleanliness. So that's a little bit of a background. What it means to be unclean, why it's important. And notice the heart of the Pharisees' criticism. What do they appeal to to say that the disciple, Jesus' disciples were unclean? What do they appeal to? They appeal not to the Torah. Their criticism isn't saying that the disciples aren't following God's word. The criticism is that the disciples aren't following the tradition of the elders. So you, you see, the Pharisees and the scribes believed that these traditions showed all of the practical ways to live out the Torah. They believed that God gave these traditions to Moses when he was on Mount Sinai. And eventually, they now believe that these traditions were written down in places like the Mishnah and the Talmud. Now, the Pharisees and other groups developed these traditions as a way to put a fence around the Torah. I've described them before, like the Pharisee and the scribes are like the ADT of the Torah. There's their security system. They don't want people even to get close to breaking the law, so they'll just put a bunch of barriers around it. And they thought living in a place that's ruled and occupied by Gentiles, there are a bunch of opportunities to get unclean. We need a ton of fences to keep us from breaking God's law. Now, that may seem scrupulous, well-intended, but actually, it's more like being paranoid. So if this was the model of godliness for that day, setting up fences, the lives of the Pharisees and the scribes, if that's what being godly in that day looked like, then boy, Jesus and his disciples must have been anything but godly in their eyes. I mean, think about what they've come into contact with so far in the story. 
They've come into contact with lepers, tax collectors, Gentiles, bleeding women, corpses. And here the Pharisees and the scribes notice this about Jesus' disciples. And they lay the blame at Jesus' feet. You look at verse 5, you can almost hear the emphasis. They ask, why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? Now, we'll let Jesus himself do the heavy lifting in showing what's wrong with the Pharisees' mindset. But for now, I think it's worth noticing the posture with which the Pharisees approach Jesus. They say they come to gather to Jesus in the first place, um, but they do so, as we've seen throughout the story, with a hypercritical spirit while being blind to all the things that are wrong about them. I think it's worth noticing that posture because I think we can often have the same posture of gathering to Jesus with a hypercritical spirit while being blind to all the things that are wrong about us. So for those who have not uh, repented of their sins and trusted in Jesus yet, this might look like questioning whether or not God exists while hating him at the same time. That's a hypercritical spirit that's inconsistent and illogical, shutting it down even from the beginning. For those of us here who would say we are Jesus followers, we have repented of our sins and trusted in him alone for the forgiveness of our sins. This posture of coming to Jesus in this kind of posture, uh, the hypercritical spirit being blind to our own wrongs, will take shape in a lot of different ways. It'll take shape in coming to church and always talking about the things you didn't like. Wasn't feeling that song. Preacher wasn't on his A game today. Nobody was here today. That's a hypercritical spirit. Not examining yourself, like, what can I provide to this? Now listen, y'all, I need that word as much as anybody here. Noticing first what is good. Being humble. Having that kind of posture as approaching the Lord. That kind of posture can look like reading the word or hearing the word preached and only thinking about what, how it concerns others and not how it concerns you. It can be approaching the word only at the level of our in, uh, being interested in background information and amassing facts instead of being interested in pursuing God himself and living in obedience to him. That's a hypercritical spirit blind to the things that are wrong with us. Friends, we can keep going. But whenever we gather to Jesus, as it says in verse 1, we should ask why we are doing that. Why? Friends, I think the best answer, why should we gather to Jesus? Because we need life. And he alone has the words of life. Well, that's a Pharisee's critique. Pharisees ask Jesus a question and Jesus gives an answer. He doesn't pull any punches either. So you see the first part of it in verses 6 to 13. We look how Jesus starts. Quotes scripture and then calls them hypocrites. Hits the ground running real fast. 
Now, I think it'd be helpful to summarize the two main parts of Jesus' answer and then see the details after that. So, first part of Jesus' answer, Jesus criticizes the tradition of the elders, how they appeal to that, saying that their concern with that actually keeps them far from God and does not bring them near him. That's the main thrust of the first part of his answer. The second part of his answer, which is going to come in verses 14 to 23, he says that they have a wrong view of sin. They don't realize where sin begins. They don't realize where sin comes from. They don't realize how deep sin actually goes. So let's see if we can break down the first part of Jesus' answer, criticizing the tradition of the elders. So again, notice how Jesus begins. He calls them hypocrites. What's a hypocrite? You probably know what a hypocrite is. Most of us do, at least. It's somebody who says one thing but does another. It's somebody who holds a standard out for other people but does not hold that standard for themselves. Now, maybe you've heard this term hypocrite. Um, preachers explain this all the time, how in the ancient world it was a term for an actor. Now, actors wore masks back then, uh, masks of the character that they played, so that the mask hid their real personality from the audience. Now, the mask that the Pharisees wore, that they wanted the outside world to see, was one of being extremely devoted to God. That was the mask they put on. And they were extremely devoted to God in all the little details, comprehensively, every little possible thing. But there's something behind that mask. It's the motivation of being want, wanting to see people, uh, you be that way. So like a place like Matthew 6, Jesus says, don't be like the Pharisees who love to pray in the synagogues and the street corners so that others may notice that. Who Don't be like the Pharisees. When they give, they sound the trumpet so that others may praise them. They want to be seen for being extremely godly. That's the mask they put on. So it just illustrates the principle. Jesus calling them hypocrites. That appearances don't always tell the whole story. Appearances don't always tell the whole story. That what we show to people doesn't always reflect what's actually going on in our hearts. This is true almost at a scary level. This is true in extreme situations. Something like um, Ariel Castro, who for 10 years could hold three women captive and nobody know, knew about it. You, appearances don't tell the whole story. And the same was true for the Pharisees. Although their strict adherence to the tradition of the elders made them appear to be near God, Jesus says their attitudes and other actions show otherwise, that they don't know God at all, that what they showed were one thing, but that what they actually were was another. That's being a hypocrite. Now, how did their hypocrisy work? What did they use to pull it off? This is the heart of Jesus' critique. They use, not God's word, they use the tradition of the elders. Jesus explains that the tradition of the elders was the mask that hid who they actually were. 
Their agenda in using the tradition of the elders wasn't to be clean and seek God. It was to make themselves appear to look good. Their motivation in using the tradition of the elders was to maintain their status and their power. And it was to avoid the responsibilities that God actually called them to. They had bad motives for putting on this mask. It was not as it seemed. So Jesus' response to this critique against them, just as a little sidebar, I think actually leaves a good example for us. See, right away he quotes scripture. Jesus knows his Bible well. And he knows his opponents well enough that he can go beyond just sweeping generalizations to actual concrete examples. Boy, we need that in our age. We really need that in our age. So Jesus proves that the tradition of the elders was just a front for the Pharisees to mask their cold hearts by giving an example. Verses 9 to 13. The example is Corbin. You probably talk about Corbin every day, don't you? That's what I thought. Corbin, the mark gives a little definition in there. It also means uh, set apart for God or holy. And it describes what's going on in verses 9 to 13. Basically, Corbin is like deferred giving. So now, like you can designate a part of your money in your will, set it aside for a charity, for an institution. But in the meantime, while you're still around, that money's still yours and you can still hold on to it. But it's designated for something else already. The same kind of thing is working on here. The Pharisees would set aside or vow to give money to God or or to the temple at their death. But while they're still around, they maintained control over that money. And meanwhile, while they're still around, their parents need help. And to that they say, oh, well, you know, You just missed me. I devoted all of that to the Lord already. So I can't give any to you. You you really don't want to make me go back on my word that I promised to God, do you? God called dibs on this. And uh, are you really going to make me go back on that? Do you honor dibs? Well, what's really going on is not that they want to give money to the Lord, but they want to maintain control of their money themselves and keep it from others. One commentator puts it this way. He said, In Corbin, a man goes through the formality of vowing something to God, not that he may give it to God, but in order to prevent some other person from having it. Now the Pharisees said this was okay. Why? Because the tradition of the elders said it was okay. But the tradition of the elders prevents them, prohibits them from obeying God's word. So they're placing it above God's word. Verse 12, it says, no longer permit him to do anything for his father and mother. In verse 13 shows, this wasn't an anomaly. This wasn't like a one sliver example. No, no, no. Many such things they did. This was a way of life. Pharisees were loophole makers so that they can stay in their selfish lifestyles. So to review, what Jesus says in response so far to the Pharisees' critique, 
basically is that you can look godly, or just because you look godly does not mean you are godly. Just because you look godly does not mean you are godly. Now, we can nuance that a little bit and talk about the necessity of fruit and bearing fruit, but there is such a thing as false, disingenuous fruit. The Pharisees esteemed the tradition of the elders because it made them look godly. But actually, it kept them from being godly. So two quick applications in light of the first part of Jesus' answer. I think we could think of more, but at least two. One, check underneath the mask. Check underneath the mask. What's the mask that you put on for people? To ask it differently. What do you want people to see about you? What do you hope people see about you? You want to know that? Maybe check your social media postings. Notice how you behave differently around certain groups of people. Do you secretly want people to know how busy you are? If you're anything like me, you do. If you're like me, when people know you're busy, then it allows you to think, well, people think I'm important. People are lining up to spend time with me. Other people see then how high of demand that I'm in. And then they can see how competent I am if I can handle all that just pretending to be poised through it. That's what I want people to see about me. You can fill in the blank with a lot of different things, though. We want people to see that we're smart. We want people to see that we're beautiful or talented or funny or even godly. So, friends, we need to check if we're concerned and controlled more by what we want people to see or by what God sees about us. If your trust is in Christ, God sees Jesus when he sees you. And you don't have to live or die if other people's perception and opinion of you goes up and down. You have a far firmer ground than that. And your identity is secure. Because it's in finished work. And I think one practical way to counteract our desire for people to notice certain things about us is to do things in obscurity. Just a practical thing. Obey the Lord in certain ways that nobody will ever know about and that you won't tell anybody about. That counteracts our desire to be known for certain things. Now, I'm not saying you can't do anything in public, but this will help our hearts some, I think. Another application, Jesus' criticism of the authority of the elders, or the tradition of the elders. Uh, the second one is that adding another authority besides Scripture never leads to good things. Adding another authority besides Scripture never leads to good things. Let me explain what I mean. Can you see how the Pharisees' desire of being seen by people led them to emphasize something other than the Bible? By adding a bunch of extra rules, the Pharisees could give it the impression that they were perfect in following the law to a T. And they can maintain a selfish heart at the same time. 
the extra rules allowed them to give that perception. So when you peel back the layers, you'll find that any emphasis of an authority besides the Bible is either a power grab to show how great you are or to exercise power over another, or it's a way to justify questionable practices. See that throughout church history. You see that in the medieval Roman Catholic Church in the practice of indulgences. You see that today in private revelations justifying that God wants you rich, healthy, and God wants a private jet for you because God told me so. That's adding another authority on top of Scripture, justifying questionable practices. Because some things are just so wacky that there's just no way it's from the Bible. Jesus says that by adding another authority besides Scripture, the Pharisees communicate that people know better than God. That's what they communicate. By adding another authority besides Scripture, the Pharisees communicate that the Bible is insufficient. To add another authority besides Scripture creates a middleman, which means you're listening to an opinion rather than what the Bible says. Having the Bible as our one ultimate authority means we are specific where it's specific and have wisdom and charity where it's not specific. So for example, the Bible says there's no other name under heaven by which, given among men by which we must be saved. That name is Jesus. We are specific and non-negotiable on that. The Bible also says, a place like Psalm 19, let the words of my heart and the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O God, my rock and my redeemer. Notice it says that. It's laying down a principle. It is not saying you can't listen to Def Leppard and Led Zeppelin. This is harder to follow than this. So, remind you of where we are. The Pharisees notice that the disciples don't wash their hands before they eat. And it's not that it's gross. It's that in their mind, this meant that the disciples didn't care whether or not they were spiritually clean. The Pharisees thought this way because they strictly followed the tradition of the elders, which was a commentary on the law for all scenarios of life, a way to fence breaking the law. Jesus, in turn, points out that their appeal to the tradition of the elders wasn't a knockdown case. By following the tradition of the elders, they end up breaking the word of God. That means they follow the tradition not because they want to be holy, but because they want people to see how godly they are, and they want to avoid the character that God calls them to have. But there's something else that's messed up. Jesus points out in verses 14 to 23 that the Pharisees' view of what it means to be clean and unclean is wrong in the first place. Now, Jesus tells the Pharisees that sin goes far deeper than they think and starts in a different place. What makes a person unclean, defiled, or sinful is not their external behavior, but their heart. Again, Jesus explains it more to his thick-headed disciples by drawing out what he means. He takes the example of physical food. And he says it can't be that physical food makes you sin because it goes in one end and comes out the other. 
We sin because of what is already in us. Now, it's not that Jesus isn't concerned about behavior or what influences us. He's concerned about the root of our sin. Jesus explains in another place that the healthy tree bears good fruit and the diseased tree bears bad fruit. The fruit comes from the roots. Another way I thought of it is to liken it to your car. Uh, so I put more highway miles on my car a couple weeks ago. Uh, and as you've likely experienced, there was a beautiful, fresh coat of white salts that encompassed my car. Now, as ugly as the thing looked because of that, you know what I was still able to do, even though that was the case, even though my car was dirty? I was still able to start it and drive it. It still worked, even as ugly as it looked. Now, let's say it was dirty, salt all over it, but I couldn't start it. Where should I take my car? Should I take it to the car wash? You know, get, the, uh, get to the premium, deluxe package. The, you know, people pay like $45 for that to wash their car, which is insane. So if my car is dirty, it can't start. Is that where I should I take it, the car wash? No. I should take it to the mechanic because the problem isn't about the outside of it. It's about what's underneath the hood. So that's what the Pharisees are doing here. The Pharisees treat an engine problem by buffing up the exterior. If sin goes past the level of exteriors and down to the level of our hearts, what does that mean for us? I think we can see a couple implications right from this passage. First one, first kind of application from this, sin being a matter of the heart means that all foods are clean. Kind of a weird place to start, isn't it? All foods are clean. But this is the implication that Mark draws out in verse 19. Well, if you can go through the motions and do rituals while having a wicked heart, then, what it, then being clean must go beyond rituals and uh, motions. They don't tell the whole story. Jesus isn't saying food regulations were faulty in the first place. He is saying that they were meant to come from a heart that loves the Lord. So remember, certain foods, like other things, made people unclean and unable to approach God. He's not saying that those regulations were faulty. But something has changed. Something has changed. The way we approach God is no longer by being cleansed by what we do. Jesus fulfills the purpose of the food regulations because they are no longer what make us clean. He makes us clean. We are cleansed by what Christ has done, and we are cleansed and counted as righteous by standing in his holiness, not our own. Food regulations are fulfilled. That's the first implication. Second, second implication or application, whatever you want to call it, is that sin going beyond the exterior to the level of our heart is that sin is a far more drastic problem than we realize. Sin is a far more drastic problem than we realize. There's this perpetual irony about legalism. 
is that they give the impression that they're really strict, they take sin super seriously, they have all these rules. But what Jesus points out is that actually you don't take sin seriously enough. Because sin goes way deeper than how you treat it. See, God's law is meant to act something like a check engine light. But the Pharisees are like a lot of us, and you just like kind of put tape in front of the check engine light and, you know, just keep driving like everything's fine. Or you turn up the music a little bit so you don't hear what's going on under the hood. The law shows us that in the very deepest part of ourselves, we do not love the Lord our God with all of our might. The very deepest part of ourselves. We do not love the Lord our God above everything else. So, I mean, you can make a busted down car as shiny as you want, but it's still a busted down car. Jesus says it's an engine problem, and what's under our hood is not pretty. You can see how he describes it in verses 21 to 22. He reflects what we read earlier in Jeremiah 17, that the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? This is the root of the problem. This is the real problem. And God knows this. God knows this so well that he promised in Ezekiel 36 to one day give his people new hearts. He says, I will remove the heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And friends, this is what Jesus has won for us. The Bible says how we are connected or united to Christ by faith. Now, for those of us for whom that's true, it speaks that we have an old self, that we have died to sin by virtue of being connected to the death of Christ. But it also says, for those who are united to Christ by faith, that we have new selves, that we are new creatures, that we are alive to God, not by virtue of anything that we've done, but by virtue of being connected, not just to Christ's death, but to Christ's resurrection. So that our old hearts are dead and we have new hearts because of what Christ has done for us. So friends, know this morning what God says is our real problem. The problem is at the core of ourselves, not just our behavior. So don't settle for just trying to be the best version of yourself, as they say. Don't settle for just a touch up. Take this seriously enough to cry out for a new heart and go to the only one who can give that to you one who died and rose again in your place. So closing, last thing we can take out of what Jesus says, that sin goes beyond the exterior to the level of our hearts. Last thing is that this produces a far more freeing life than that of the Pharisees. It produces a far more freeing life. So compare their lifestyles. Just think about it. Compare the lifestyle of the Pharisees and of Jesus and his disciples. You ever see movies where they're trying to break into a place and like the place is all rigged up with a big security system and lasers like going across the hallway and it's meant to make it seem impossible to get through? 
Well, the Pharisees are like those, like, oh, no, we got this, and we could just like, kind of maneuver our way around it. And they spent time actually setting up more lasers to keep more people, to make it even harder for people to get to God. It makes me think of uh, when George Clooney and Matt Damon faced the same obstacle in Ocean's Eleven. Now, I'm not calling you to emulate that movie in every way by robbing a casino. I'm saying they're uh, descending an elevator shaft. They see all these lasers, and they're like, we can't get through that. They find a way to just turn it off so they can get down to it. Now, we can't fulfill the law to get to God can't maneuver it but Jesus has Jesus has went before us satisfied the law's requirements living the life that we didn't live satisfying its requirements even to the level of his heart and he has taken the curse of the law that it places on those who violate it he's taken that curse on himself And by doing this, he goes before us and opens the way back to God. Now, when we recognize our need for a new heart, we should quickly recognize that we can't give it to ourselves. Unless I'm mistaken, I don't think anybody has ever performed a heart transplant on themselves. No amount of maneuvering will get us there, but Jesus will. You see how much of a relief that is. There's no need to worry that we're right with God because we don't stand in our work. We stand in Christ's finished work. Christ takes that load, puts it on himself, and gives us rest, frees us from that worry. And what's more, once he does that, he gives us new hearts so that we who are accepted by God now have the power to live like it. Praise the Lord. Let's pray. God, help us to understand our problem. Help us to take sin seriously enough, going beyond exterior to the level of our heart. God, when we see that, we see our desperate need for your grace and your mercy. Not just for your forgiveness, but for the transformation that you give to us. We see our need for new hearts. And God, we thank you that you've provided so faithfully in that. So now having new new hearts, Lord, help us to live like what Christ has won for us. Help us to live in a manner worthy of the gospel for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. In Jesus' name, amen.